Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Andy Arnott and... Amy Weiss. And this is Seller Roundtable number 14. And we are super excited to have Leron Hirschhorn with us today. And uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, it's surprising. He is the uh, world traveler, um, the, the pinnacle Amazon guru, even though people don't like to use the word guru anymore. There's like a negative connotation. So we'll, <laughs> we'll say Amazon expert. I like that better too. When, when people ask if I'm a guru, I say, no, I'm, I'm an expert, even though expert is maybe a little presumptuous as well. But I can't, <laughs> I can't think of something better. So uh, th- thanks a lot for joining us, Theron. Yes, thanks for having me on. So we're, we're, uh, we're going to get started with some of the basics. Um, I, I know that you've been on a bunch of other podcasts. You have your own. So a lot of people um, might, may have already kind of heard your background story, but just, just give us a little, you know, like maybe like where you're born, like kind of how you got into Amazon, you know, stuff like that. Uh, sure. Um, so uh, actually I was born in uh, Israel um, and uh, my family moved to the East Coast uh, in the U.S. when I was six. My dad was actually sent over from his company uh, to work here, ended up buying a business, uh, you know, living the American dream and uh, ended up growing up here. Uh, I started, um, so I actually started getting into like internet marketing uh, around 2008 as, as a hobby. I was in financial services. Um, in 2010, I started um, an online life insurance agency, um, and I did that um, until I sold that um, in about 2015. Um, I started sort of dabbling with e-commerce in 2014. First, I took a, a e-commerce dropshipping course, set up a Shopify site. Then I quickly learned about Amazon, started doing arbitrage, um, and then in 2015, late 2015, got into uh, starting my first private label uh, brand. Um, so since then, I've started um, three brands, one new one with a partner, uh, built two brands to seven figures, um, and um, somehow got into this world of, uh, you know, also helping uh, helping sellers. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like a lot of us in, in this position are kind of, you know, have a similar type, type uh, you know, background. Um, yeah, same here. Like I started, you know, 18 years old, Amy too. She's, she's been doing it for a long time too. And not necessarily the Amazon, but like the marketing internet, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of similarities between a lot of people who are, um, you know, being successful on Amazon. A lot of people have like technical, like, um, like software developers, marketers, things like that. Cause that's kind of, uh, translates pretty well to Amazon. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Yes pretty interesting how that's, how that's working. Um, did you take any courses when you got started or did you just like hit the YouTube or what? Um, you know what? So when I first got started, I actually got uh, a book, um, on arbitrage called online arbitrage from Chris Green. Uh, that's kind of how I started. Um, then I started following Andy Slimans, who's now like my business partner in, in, you know, what we do. Um, I started following him and actually took his course. Um, then I ended up meeting him face-to-face and ended up partnering. But um, yeah, so I would say from there, um, I started after I got his course. Yeah, I got, I got a lot, like I bought a lot of courses. I went to a lot of events, a lot of podcasts, masterminds, like whatever I could kind of devour, like in my first couple of years, uh, I pretty much did. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good. And that's where uh, Amy and I are always telling people like, you, you know, a lot of the people who are successful on, on Amazon are the get people who just, you know, deep dive, you know, they're, 
they're eating, eating, breathing, and drinking Amazon. They're, you know, staying up on all the, the, the podcasts and blogs on, you know, reading everything they can, learning everything they can. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, I call, I call them the Lamborghini gurus. A lot of the Lamborghini gurus, you know, make people think that it's just some easy thing that you could just jump into and make a ton of money on. Um, but you know, what we teach people, um, you know, on this podcast is like, you know, how to, you know, how to actually run a business along with, you know, uh, selling on Amazon because, you know, selling on Amazon is, is a lot of it is, you know, just like technical, um, standard, you know, business practices and things like that, the basics of business and, you know, so many other courses and things like that. Um, you know, that's where people uh, are, are kind of, you know, failing, I think by, by kind of teaching the, the entire picture of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I agree. The, the Lamborghini gurus are probably not the ones you want to <laughs> learn from. Cool. So, um, like what was, what was one of your biggest challenges when you got started with Amazon? Um, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think my, my biggest challenge was in, in initially was sort of learning and understanding things. And, um, you know, when I first started with arbitrage, it was about understanding bestseller rank and understanding, um, understanding like how many sellers are on a listing and looking at price history and all, all that stuff. But that really translated well when I wanted to get into private label because I had a, a really good understanding of, you know, BSRs and categories. And this was before like, you know, you had tools like jungle scout and, you know, things out there that give you a lot of that data. So, right. um, that was, and, you know, and then, you know, I think initially then kind of like picking products was definitely a challenge. Initially I had my share of like failed, failed products that I launched because, you know, I thought I could bring a premium product to the marketplace and sell for higher than everybody else and realized that I didn't really look at the data enough. And so I think early on understanding that every decision you make on Amazon should be data driven was like my biggest lesson. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that too, because, you know, everybody also sees like, you know, the, the bigger successful Amazon sellers and thinks, you know, that, that, you know, they, they knew it all. And, you know, they, they were just like, you know, got, got that way, you know, you know, easily. Um, it's good to hear that, you know, big sellers, even myself, like, you know, I learned a lot of lessons, failed a lot, you know, fail fast. You know, that, that whole thing is, you know, that, that's what a lot of the uh, newer sellers really need to realize that uh, you're, you're going to have some huge setbacks on Amazon, especially on Amazon, because, you know, there's so much changing so quickly. Um, you know, what, what worked six months ago or even one month ago might not be working now. You really, really have to stay up on, on, uh, on that data. And I know, <laughs> Liron, you're like me, you're always, you know, seeing what's working next, testing, turning dials, um, all that fun stuff. Um, you know, recently there's been some, some, uh, you know, some uproar about, uh, people getting, um, uh, banned and things like that. A lot of speculation. What's your thoughts on that? I, I'm, I, you know, I'll, I'll kind of follow up with, with what I'm thinking too, but I, I have a feeling it's going to be pretty on par. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So my thought first is that, um, this seems to be affecting one more newer accounts. Um, and, um, my feeling is that newer accounts might be getting flagged uh, what seems to be maybe for some velocity uh, review. And then Amazon is seeing 90% off codes and, and saying it's a uh, manipulation of, of sales rank. Um, I ran a launch using a launch service for a client uh, about a month ago, 90% off codes. Not only, I mean, obviously he didn't get suspended thankfully, but he also ranked. Now today I probably wouldn't wouldn't do ninety percent off codes. Um, if anything, I would do sixty sixty five percent off. Um, but I think there's better strategies in general. There's um, you know the ability to first uh, I think be very aggressive with PPC. Try to get to you know on some keywords between page you know two to five, 
and then use things like search, find, buy, and you know, chatbots, um, and maybe backend rebates, things like that to to you know rank your products. So, um, and if you do do need to do you know uh, a giveaway again, um, don't do it at a at a ninety percent off uh, offer. In fact, both Viral Launch um, and Six Leaf have lowered their max discounts. Um, on their launch services. So, I mean, the, there's better things you could do than just run 90% off launches. But I think this is, from what, I, from what I'm seeing, this has been affecting uh, newer accounts um, and 90% off codes combined. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, and uh, the other thing that I've been seeing as well is um, a lot of the other people who are getting uh, suspended are doing some kind of uh, follow-up, whether it's email or chatbot, asking for a review. Uh, which you and I both know has been around forever that you're not supposed to combine, you know, an ask for a review and a discount. I think a lot of that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you, you, we, we have these windfalls where, you know, uh, you'll hear about this and then people will start following the rule and then it'll kind of get pushed like a couple years, you know, because this happened two years ago. Now people start, the newer people coming on kind of don't really hear about it because it's not talked about anymore because it's kind of like a known thing. And right. so I've been telling my people, you know, be really, really careful with, um, you know, especially automation right now, um, until this kind of shakes out, you know, with automated chatbots and automated follow-up emails, because you never know if somebody's buying, you know, say two products from you, you know, one of those products might've been discounted. You go back a month later on your automation and say, Hey, how is your product? You know, can you leave me a review? Well, guess what? You're just violating TOS. And I think those are, um, you know, a few of the things that Amazon's really looking at. Um, and I, I would add that if you are using anything like a chatbot or, you know, even, even if you, if you're doing like a backend rebate, if you're using things like chatbot or, or asking for reviews, then, um, if you're using a chatbot, then don't give a link to the review, show the person images showing instructions on how to go and leave a review. Um, so like go to your orders, you know, order history and show an image. Um, and then if you're using, you know, follow up emails, you can always send the person to a link where it just shows them like, um, the recent purchases that they have, and then they can go and find the product and leave a review instead of a direct uh, review link to the product. Um, because that also is sort of unnatural, right? Um, if Amazon sees, um, sees the person coming from that link, that could be seen as unnatural. So I think you could take those, you know, extra precautions. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think Amazon's looking at, especially with uh, machine learning and things like that, they're really trying to, um, you know, look at unnatural behaviors, whether it's, you know, uh, search on the website or uh, like you said, direct linking, things like that. Now, a lot of people have, have said that like, you know, two-step URLs, you know, all those kinds of things are also like, you know, Amazon's cracking down on, on that. Um, I haven't seen or heard anybody uh, get suspended for that. Um, not to say that, you know, like I always tell people that with the caveat that tomorrow Amazon could turn around and start doing it. So I can't right. guarantee that that's not going to happen, but um, I have, I haven't seen, you know, two-step URLs, um, you know, being affected in the, in that same way, just so that people kind of know that that tactic so far, at least still seems to be safe. Right. So and that, can and I throw why... something in here as far as we were just talking about using chatbots and email follow-up systems. What about when your product is doing very well and you're not discounting it at all? It's a full price purchase. Can you go right in then? And that's, there's nothing against TOS about that. And then ramp up your your chatbots and um, and email responses. As far as following up with re- for reviews, yes, absolutely. I mean, according to Amazon Terms of Service, you're allowed to send an email, you know, asking for asking for a review. Um, you know, and what I do in my follow up emails is um, I actually don't even ask for a review in the first email. I just uh, say like, 
um, hey, you know, can you just let us know if you received the product and if it came in good shape and like, P.S., we strive for like a thousand percent customer satisfaction. Just hit quick reply and let us know you got it. And then they say, yeah, I love it or whatever. And then, then we'll follow up and say, hey, we'd love for you to leave us feedback. I don't even use the word review just because of getting flagged, whatever, by Amazon bots. But, um, you know, we still ask for, for a review on, on, every, on every order, but we try to engage the customer first. Um, you know, and only, we only follow up people that respond to that initial, uh, initial email. And I feel like that works better because it also, it also, uh, is a good way to fend off negative, uh, reviews. You know, if you're, if you just send a link to a review and the customer is pissed, they might leave you a bad review. Whereas if you say, Hey, let us know if you received the product and if it came in good shape and they write back, actually, no, it came broken. Like no problem. We can refund, we can replace it. And once the customer is satisfied, um, as for review. And then I think that's also part of the reason why you really want to use inserts and in your inserts in my inserts, my strategy is not, you know, getting a future purchase, even though I put a discount code for future purchase, the main highlight of my inserts is a phone number, uh, use grasshopper and a customer service email. And I try to really move that conversation. Um, this week I bought a, um, a product on Amazon called underarmed, which is this like natural deodorant. Somebody recommended to me. And when I opened up, when I opened it up, the first thing it says that it said was, hi, I'm Sean. I created Underarm. Um, if, uh, if you have any issues, do not return this product to Amazon. Email this address and I'll take care of you. Um, and I think using strategies like that to, to counter bad reviews. I mean, I have some products made of glass and, you know, once in a while something breaks and we get an email and consistently we turn those one-star review, like potential one-star reviews into five-star reviews when we replace their glass product. Um, and then they're super happy. And then outside of Amazon's messaging system, I could be a lot more liberal in the conversation, you know, that I have with the person and like we fix their problem. And I would say, Hey, we really appreciate if you could leave us a review. Um, whereas, you know, on Amazon messaging, I don't know that I would be that, you know, liberal with language. Right. I think that those are great tips. Uh, you mentioned only engaging with those customers that actually respond to your first email. I know Andy and I both have kind of we don't really focus on emails anymore. It's just not great open rates. We would rather focus on providing great customer service through product inserts, packaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just as you said, then you can have a real conversation with the customer without worrying about Amazon bots you know, flagging you and you can actually take care of, of customer service. Yes. So I think those are great tips. Yeah. Just to follow up on that really quickly too. Um, I think that. Um, you know, going back to the inserts, people don't spend enough time on crafting those. Like, I mean, if you think about it, you know, I, I'm not sure what, I've never seen uh, um, Amy's insert for her sifties, but um, you know, to me with a product like that, you know, a picture of her and her family with her cat, you know, and, and kind of a backstory on why she created it, in a, you know, even if it's a flyer form, like something like that, if people see um, that you're a family business, they are so much more likely to go the extra mile because, you know, a lot of those people are going to have families um, or, or they're going to know that they're dealing with a person, not a giant corporation. So many people that shop on Amazon, um, think that all of us are these like giant multinational corporations with like unlimited bank accounts. So they have no problem, you know, review, uh, returning stuff or like kind of treating us a little bit differently than like the mom and pop shop, like on their, in their neighborhood on the corner. Um, because they go in and see that person, you know, all the time. I think if you put a face behind the brand and tell the story that you're going to be much more likely to get people to connect with your brand and to, to, to uh, get a positive experience uh, and give you positive feedback. And that's a, that's a great point. And that's something, you know, you could be doing in enhanced brand content too, right? If you, if you have a trademark and you, and you could do that, then 
Um, yeah, if you have a family oriented type product, you know, putting yourself as the founder uh, of the company, why you created it, kind of your story, you know, to connect more uh, with, with your audience, I think is, is a great strategy. Liron, what are you doing? Is there anything? So, so because the game is changing a little bit now with like launches and reviews kind of, can you tell me what you're doing in your business um, in regards to like new launches, um, maybe product research that's kind of changed a little bit now too, because it's starting to come out that, you know, a lot of the data coming from these product uh, research tools is, is, you know, there's, there's a lot of variance on them and it's not completely hundred percent accurate. Um, you know, what, what are you doing, uh, differently now than you were say like six months ago? Um, I think as far, so as far as my product launches, definitely my strategy has shifted to, to start off with aggressive PPC and then utilizing, uh, like a search find buy strategy with, with a backend rebate. Um, I also find you need to do a lot less, uh, units when you're doing full price buys. Um, I think, and so that's really what I've, what I've been doing. Um, as far as like product research, my, my strategy, um, has always been to come up with a differentiated offer. Um, I, I'll never bring a product to market that, you know, I, I, I search for that product on Amazon and there's like 20 of the same thing on, on, on the page. Um, the question that I, you know, I, I often say is you need to answer the question, why would somebody buy from me? Um, and if you can't, you don't have a good answer to that question. Then, um, so I, I recently came out with a, with a, with a product, um, this year on a, on a new brand. And my offering is actually, um, a bundle that's coming from like four different suppliers. It's not super easy for somebody to go and and just, you know, immediately duplicate my product line. It's going to take them six months to go and source and get the multiple, multiple suppliers and get the samples and, and do all that. And so I think, you know, complexity can be, your friend, if you can figure it out and get over the uh, complex hurdle of bringing a product to market, then it's not as easy for people to uh, to come in and, and duplicate your product. And so, you know, I would say avoid, you know, avoid mass market products, avoid products that appeal to everybody and, you know, go after niches, go after products that can do, you know, five to $15,000 a month in revenue um, and build up, build up a portfolio of, of products like that. Um, you know, I also recently came back from the Canton Fair. It's another really good way of discovering products that you wouldn't necessarily find on Alibaba or find on Amazon, and you can kind of be ahead of the curve. So um, at the Canton Fair, I found a product developed by these two guys from Europe. Um, they're selling it successfully in Europe, not in the U.S. market at all. Um, I found it on the, the first day of, of phase two, and uh, I was able to have a conversation with them and say, look, don't, you know, only private label to me for Amazon. Um, and they agreed to do it. Um, and I don't think there's any way I would have been able to have that conversation or convince them to do that if it wasn't face to face in person. So, you know, I think, um, you know, getting out to trade shows, whether it's us or especially Canton fair are really good ways to, uh, come up with, uh, products, bundling, differentiation, all that stuff. Um, you know, I think is super, super important to do because I think the days of just bringing in, you know, a generic type of product and having success are, are short lived. And if you do, you know, typically after five, six months, market's going to, people are going to, competitors are going to come in and your price is going to tank. Um, and you're going to have a, you know, a short life to your product. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. I just got back from Canton fair as well. I didn't, didn't get to see you there, unfortunately, but Next I agree. Month. I found at least on the first day of phase two, I, I saw many products that I had been searching for and researching for well over a year 
that was unable to find on any other sources. And there they were only being sold to Europe, only being sold to other markets. And then, you know, again, found a lot of really unique stuff and met with a lot of manufacturers that I could use to develop my own products, which is just really a great thing and gives you a leg up. But I think going and meeting with your factories and, and going to China is just a, it's, it's awesome. You know, really make a game, a game changer for your business. Yes. I totally, uh, totally agree with that. I I think it's worth making, making the effort to, to go to China, finding products that you won't find on, um, on Alibaba. And a lot of suppliers actually don't want to put their stuff on Alibaba, especially not when they have a new product because all the other Chinese suppliers are going to copy them. So, um, they're purposely not necessarily putting those products on Alibaba, um, right away. So lots of opportunity. I really got sort of re-energized because, you know, you hear so much talk about Amazon is saturated. Every product has, is super competitive, blah, blah, blah. And then you walk around the Canton fair and you're like, I've never seen that product before. Like I've never seen that product before. And then you realize there's a market there um, and there's opportunity. So um, definitely worth worthwhile to, to uh, make the trip. Liron, are you uh, um, back going to, since we're kind of on the subject of, um, you know, sourcing in China, now there's talk of, of these new duties, uh, you know, coming into play. I think it's on Friday, um, <laughs> which twenty five percent, twenty five percent, yeah, which is gonna, you know, really, really uh, stick it to Amazon sellers, and then of course down to the end user. You know, all prices are gonna rise across the board. Um, you know, that being said, have you done any diversification on you know where you source from, and and is this gonna cause you to do that? If if that goes, um, so good question. Um, I still source all my products from China. Um, I don't think that this tariff thing is going to be a long-term kind of, kind of a thing. Um, you know, I think obviously Trump is trying to negotiate, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, use, use this as a negotiation tool with China. Um, I wish, you know, I, I've thought about it. I've, uh, you know, I, I talked to people about sourcing from, you know, Taiwan, um, Vietnam, there's other places to source, but, I guess sourcing from China is so much easier. Um, and my current products are made there that I haven't made the leap. I would say if, if this was going to be, if 25% was going to be a sticking thing and it was going to last into next year, then yeah, I'd probably, uh, I'd probably look to source from, from other countries, but like China is just so easy to source products out of China that, um, it makes it kind of a pain to try to try to go elsewhere, at least for smaller sellers, you know, like, uh, you know, brands doing, you know, not, not doing, you know, $100 million, $50 million that, that you have the very easy ability to go elsewhere. So, um, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not sourcing anywhere, anywhere else, but I also don't think the tariff thing is going to, is going to be a long-term thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you there. I, re- I, I always tell this story just real quickly about how, when I first started out, you know, I was like, I'm going to do made in the USA. And, uh, I I'm, I'm in Santa Rosa, California, which is Northern California. There's a, uh, a local, um, uh, you know, uh, injection molding place and, and a few other manufacturers that I found locally that could, uh, assemble my product, do all that. So I went to this, uh, this plastics, uh, the injection molding company that's like really close to my house, like 20 minutes away. And, you know, the CEO met me there, you know, heard I was a seven figure Amazon seller. They gave me the tour the, you know, and then after that it was like radio science. I emailed them being like, Hey, like I want to move forward. Like what's next? Like where are my bids? Like it was like, seriously, like pulling teeth just trying mm-hmm. to get to the point where I could get a bid from them that I just, I said, okay, well, this is why people source in China. Right. And the U S factories and the, and the people manufacturing in the U S the reason why we're losing here is because we're not looking, 
you know, we always think we're like the U S is like the leading edge of everything. People really need to start looking at China to see, uh, because there's so much less red tape there. If something works there, they just move, everybody just moves into that, you know, and starts doing it. I think manufacturing in the U.S., that's a huge issue. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.